Good morning, everyone. In preparation for the preaching of the word, our scripture reading this morning comes from John 4, 46 through 54. And if you have your Bible, I'd invite you to follow along. And if you are using the Pew Bible, uh, you will find those verses on page 74 in the New Testament. That's page 74. Hear the word of the Lord. Then he came again to Cana of Galilee, where he had made the water wind. And there was a royal official whose son was sick at Capernaum. When he heard that Jesus had come out of Judea into Galilee, he went to him and was asking him to come down and heal his son, for he was about to die. So Jesus said to him, Unless you people see signs and wonders, you will never believe. The royal official said to him, Sir, come down before my child dies. And Jesus said to him, Go, your son lives. The man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him and started on his way. And while he was still going down, his slaves met him, saying that his son was alive. So he inquired of them the hour when he began to get better. Then they said to him, Yesterday at the seventh hour the fever left him. So the father knew that it was at that hour in which Jesus said to him, Your son lives. And he himself believed in his whole household. This is, again, a second sign that Jesus did when he had come out of Judea into Galilee. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Father, I love that song and the declaration <clears throat> that it is that we trust in you. And uh, when tears are great and comforts few, we, we hope in mercies ever new, we trust in you. We know that your purposes will ripen fast, they will unfold every hour. And though the bud may have a bitter taste, we know that sweet will be the flower. Lord, please keep us from that blind unbelief that is sure to err and scan your work in vain. We know that you are your own interpreter. You will make it plain. Um, or so often we are tempted to judge the world and our circumstances uh, through our own uh, limited evaluation, Lord, and interpret them according to our understanding uh, and, and how foolish that is to approach a sovereign almighty God with such arrogance. Lord, let us not judge you according to our limited evaluation and our limited abilities, but Lord, help us rest in the fact that you are your own interpreter. And not only will you make it plain in many and most ways, you've already made it plain. You've shown us in your word by your grace and mercy, you've revealed to us the mystery of your will, which is the summing up of all things in your son, appointing him as the head of an administration suitable for the fullness of times. Lord, you are bringing time to a climax. You are bringing all of human history to a single point uh, in which Jesus Christ will be exalted as supreme over all and all things will find their proper place under his feet, under his rule and dominion. Lord, we thank you for your grace that by your spirit and your word you have caused us to submit to King Jesus, joyfully and willfully in the day of his power. Lord, we thank you that you've given us a willingness to serve and to love him with our lives, Father. You are, you are working this, this great 
this uh, great accomplishment of redemption out in each one of our lives through what Jesus Christ has done for us and by the faithful working of the Spirit within us. Lord, we ask you to continue that work and to continue to cause your name to be hallowed in our hearts, Lord, so that your name might be hallowed in our homes and hallowed in our neighborhoods and families in, in this city, in this state, and in the world. Let thy name be hallowed, Father. Let thy kingdom come. Let thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That's our, that's our hope, that's our longing, and that's our eager expectation. We know that the day will come when the fullness of your will will envelop this world as, as, and the glory of, of your name, our, our Yahweh, will cover the earth as the waters cover the sea. Lord, help us fix our hope fully in the grace to be revealed to us on that day and not hope in anything temporal in the day that's now. Father, we pray that you be with us as we consider your word. Give us strength to preach. Give us strength to listen. Uh, apply your word the way that we need it applied. And uh, Lord, I pray that you would be with me, especially as I seek to communicate the truth of your word to your people. May it be a blessing to them and may it be glorifying to you. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Sorry, guys, I need to take a couple notes before I forget. Um, what an April Fool's day yesterday, huh? <clears throat> we thought it was spring. And the Lord said, here's another eight and a half inches for you. Uh, I don't know about you, we had a lot of tree damage in our place, and um, I was thankful for a friend who helped me clear away some of the oaks, big oak branches that fell in our property yesterday. But um, spring will come. <laughs> It'll come. This morning we are uh, we're going to return to John chapter four, and we're going to continue considering what the apostle John calls in verse fifty-four uh, a second sign that Jesus performed when he had come out of Judea into Galilee. Now, the first sign, obviously, was changing water into wine in Cana. We looked at that a number of months ago now. Um, this second sign is Jesus' miracle of healing uh, this royal official's son. And uh, though this uh, miracle did not take place within Cana, it took place from Cana, right? Because Jesus is in Cana. He's speaking this healing miracle over this man's son in Capernaum. And uh, these are these first two signs that Jesus did in Galilee. Now we started looking at this last week and we will uh, finish it today. But before we jump back into where we left off, there's something about the purpose of this particular sign that I want to point out to you. Um, it's something I couldn't get to last week. I had to cut it, but being that we came back to this uh, passage this week, it gave me a good opportunity to, uh, to not pass over it. So, um, and then what I want to see here is Jesus' glory that is revealed in this sign. So kids, the first point there is the glory of Jesus revealed in this sign. We've said before that signs are more than miracles. <clears throat> 
Signs are miracles, but the actual sign itself is more about contain, uh, um, um, man, not containing. What's the word, Hoochie? This is happening a lot this morning. The sign involves a miracle, but the sign is not primarily about the miracle. That's what I'm trying to say. Signs are particular ways of signifying some truth to us through a miracle. So the miracle becomes a vehicle through which the main point is communicated. That's, that's the purpose of a sign. A sign is signifying something. Now, at some level, every sign, or, or excuse me, every miracle that Jesus ever performed was communicating some kind of truth to us, whether uh, his divine nature, his supernatural ability, the Father's stamp of approval upon him. Everything that Jesus did as a miracle was communicating truth to us, but signs go a degree beyond that. Where when a sign is being performed, it is a miracle that's happening, but it's actually not about the miracle at all. A sign is designed by God to point or to direct our attention to some greater reality that we need to pay attention to, some greater reality that we need to consider. And specifically, Jesus' signs were intended to reveal something unique to us about who he is, and they serve as signposts pointing us to his glory. That's what these signs are for. So with that in mind, what does this sign in John chapter 4, show us about the glory of Jesus Christ. I think there are two elements to this, and they're both related. But number one, I think this sign serves as proof to us that Jesus has the power to give life and to save from death whenever he wants. Jesus has the sovereign right, the sovereign power, and the sovereign choice to give life and to deliver from death whenever he wants. In fact, I think that's really the main point that's being driven at here in this passage. And I, you can see this teased out for us in a threefold contradiction that's, that's, or contrasting ideas that are presented to us here in this section. So, for example, in verses 46, 47, and 49... You have a threefold description of this royal official's son's condition. Okay, so in verse 46, we're told that his son was sick, right? Verse 47, we're told that the sickness brought him to the point of death. And then verse 49, we find this man begging Jesus to come and heal his son before he dies. So there's a threefold description of the royal official's son's condition. He was sick. He was at the point of death, and if Jesus didn't come right now, it was going to be too late. His son was going to perish. All of that is, is flipped. It's, it's contrasted by three other statements of the fact that his son is living in verses 50, 51, and 53. So in verse 51, Jesus declares to the man, go, your son lives, literally uh, in, from the Greek, if you translated that pretty woodenly, it would say, your son is living. Go, your son is living. Verse 51, this man's, as he's going back, this man's slaves return to him. We're not going to get into the issue of slavery at the moment, though critical race people would love for me to launch out into that and, and uh, take the bait. I'm not going to do that. Verse 51, 
says that Jesus, uh, as the man was returning home in faith, believing Jesus' word, his slaves met him saying, your son lives. And then verse 53, the man realizes the power of Jesus' word and Jesus' authority when he comes to discover that truly his son was made alive at the hour Jesus spoke the word. So you have this threefold description or this threefold declaration that his son is living, each of those contradicting or taking care of that threefold description of his son's illness. And I think that's purposeful on the Apostle John's part. He's using this as, as a literary device to communicate some truth to us, that it's Jesus's prerogative and it's Jesus's authority to give and take life as he pleases. It's exalting his sovereignty, in other words. You know, it says in Deuteronomy 32, I, the Lord, I am the Lord, I kill and I make alive, I wound and I heal, and there is none who can deliver out of my hand. Well, right here, John the Apostle is showing us that that is being fulfilled to us in Jesus. Jesus is the, is the expression of, of Yahweh to us, having authoritative control over life and death. And that's related to the second thing I want to draw out from this, just briefly. Not only does this reveal Jesus' authority to give life and save from death according to his own will whenever he pleases, but it also magnifies the glorious reality of his divine nature. We see that in a couple ways. First of all, we see Jesus' omniscience revealed in this sign, don't we? Jesus is manifesting omniscience as he heals this man's son. Now, don't just, just think about this and don't skip over the fact that Jesus did not have to go with this man down to his home in order to heal his son. In fact, we don't even find evidence of Jesus asking for his son's name to make sure that he identified the right son that was sick in Capernaum. Jesus did not have to go and discover the man's address in order to make sure that the miracle met the person rightly, right? It's not like Jesus just balled up this miracle and hurled it down to Capernaum hoping that it was going to land on the right house and affect the right room and the right person, no, Jesus knew this man, and he knew his son. He didn't need to be told who he was. As soon as the father came to Jesus begging him for help, Jesus knew the exact situation that the father was talking about. Man, that should give us some great comfort as we think about that in relation to our own lives. Jesus knows. That's one of the most comforting declarations that Yahweh spoke to the people of Israel when they were still in Egypt. The Lord said, I know where you are. I know your condition. I see you. And I remember my covenant. Jesus is speaking the same word to us, beloved. He knows. So he's revealing his omniscience here. But then secondly, we also see Jesus' divinity, his divine nature, glorious re gloriously revealed in the way Jesus chose to heal the son. How did Jesus heal this man's son? Any thoughts? He spoke a word. That's right. He spoke a word. You know, in the Old Testament, Yahweh declares that that's how he heals his people. Did you know that? With his word. Psalm 107, verse 20. I'll start in verse 19. 
It speaks of God's people when they're in turmoil. They, they cried out to Yahweh, the Lord, in their trouble, and he saved them out of their distress. Now look at verse 20, if you're there. Verse 20 says, He sent his word and healed them and delivered them from all their destructions. So when Yahweh's people in the Old Covenant were in trouble, when they were in distress, when they were sick and at the point of death, what did they do? They cried out to Yahweh for help. And then it says Yahweh came to their aid. And how did He deliver them from their afflictions? He sent His Word. And His Word healed them. Here we find that same reality being manifest through our Lord Jesus Christ. Demonstrating to us the, the glory of His divine nature. The reality that Yahweh is truly among us, walking among us in the flesh. Bringing the full power and authority and love and compassion and grace and justice to bear upon us as human beings. Here's Jesus walking before us and demonstrating the glory of Yahweh to us. Now I bring that out because that's going to be a reality that is, that is uh, brought up over and over again throughout the rest of the gospel. So in John chapter 5, for example, verse 26, Jesus' authority to give life according to his own will is being magnified. When he says that just as the Father has life in himself, so also he gave to the Son to have life in himself. Right, And that's talking about Jesus' ability to speak a word and to bring the dead to life. Jesus says, I give life as I will, just as the Father gives life as he wills. We're going to see this again when we get to John chapter 11, verse 25, when Jesus declares that he is the resurrection and the life. He is the life that conquers death. And how is that proven and demonstrated? That's proven through raising Lazarus from the dead. And then ultimately... His authority to give life according to his own will is magnified in his own resurrection from the dead. You see this in John chapter 10, verse 18, when Jesus says, No one takes my life from me. I lay it down of my own accord that I might take it up again, because that's the command I've received from my Father. Nobody took Jesus' life from him. He laid it down willingly. He gave up the ghost, as it says in the King James Version, when he was ready to, when the payment for his people's sins had been made, when the whole work had been completed, that's when Jesus says, it's enough to tell us die. It's finished. I'm done. And he gave up his spirit. That was his authority. And then it was also, John 10, 18, his authority that caused him to take his life back into his hand and raise himself from the dead. Amen. amen. There should be an amen there. That's right, Ezer. Amen, brother. So this sign was performed to direct our attention to this truth about Jesus, that he gives life according to his will, and by implication, he takes life according to his will. And to show us that he is God in the flesh walking among us. So, I believe John's drawing this out so that you and I are prepared to come to grips with who we are dealing with when we approach this Jesus revealed to us in John's gospel. You're not coming to just a good man or a sound teacher or some, some adequate rabbi who is martyred by his people. Some helpless person. 
You're coming to God in the flesh. You're coming to Yahweh among us. You're coming to the authoritative one who holds you in the palm of his hand. It says in Hebrews 1.3 that by the word of his power, the entire universe is kept in existence. That's Colossians 1.17. In Jesus, all things consist. You know, you're a part of all things. If Jesus is not consciously holding you in being at this moment, you would not continue to to exist. Now that ought to be terrifying to every single sinner who is outside of Christ in this room. But for those of you who know Christ, that must be the most comforting thing for you to receive this morning. Jesus knows you and he's holding you together by his sovereign will and nothing is going to happen to you apart from his will allowing it. We'll get to that more in a moment. So I believe that's the glory of Jesus that's being revealed to us in this particular sign. And we'll see other aspects, other facets of Jesus' glory revealed to us in the other signs we consider moving forward. But at the heart of it, at the heart of every single one of them, is simply seeing a greater unveiling of the Son of God and His beauty. That's what we should see when we behold His signs. So the second thing we want to look at today, we want to continue moving into what we began looking at last week, which is Jesus' primary goal in this particular sign. Now, ultimately, his goal is to reveal his glory, as we just mentioned. But what is his primary concern in relation to this royal official? That's what we began looking at last week. And we stated last week that Jesus' primary concern, his primary goal, his primary aim in relation to this royal official was not merely answering his request to heal his son. Jesus was primarily after this man's faith. Right? He was, he was uh, seeking to draw out of this man his faith. He was seeking to refine and confirm and strengthen the faith that the royal official already had. And I said last week that we see that in the three main segments of this interaction that take place between Jesus and this man. So if everybody's still with me, you guys with me? Okay. I can rehash all of that if you want me to, if it would help. I just heard someone say, no, no, okay, we're okay, we got it. All right, you guys are really just going to have to be gracious with me. I have had very little, I I couldn't sleep, not on top of the nausea, I just couldn't sleep. And I probably had some, uh, I was probably getting a little delirious. You could consult Grant for that, for confirmation of that, but I sent him an email at like 1230 in the morning of just how did you describe it? It was a mixture of Lord of the Rings and um, Lord of the, what? Pilgrim's Progress, Lord of the Rings, Moby Dick, and pirates. Yeah, a lot of pirates language in there. Yeah. yeah. I would desist my ramblings, Grant. Anyway, all right. So thank you for being gracious with me today. All right, so we, we see in this passage that Jesus' primary, primary concern is to draw out of this man his faith and to strengthen that faith and confirm him in it. And we see that 
in the three different segments, the main parts of this interaction that take place between Jesus and this man. We saw the first one last week, which was the way that Jesus responded to this man's request. This man came to Jesus, begging Jesus to heal his son, and Jesus' immediate response in verse 48 is, you're just like everyone else, aren't you? You people, you just won't believe unless I do a sign or a wonder for you. You just can't believe in me unless I perform a miracle. You're just like everyone else, aren't you? That's what he's asking of this man. And it seems to us, we acknowledged last week, it seems like Jesus is basically accusing him of having the same adulterous, shallow faith as everyone else had in Galilee. Right? They accepted him because of the signs and the wonders, the things they saw him doing. They weren't accepting him because he was Messiah. They were accepting him because he was a miracle worker. Now, John chapter 2, verse 24 and 25 make clear to us that Jesus was not confused about the true state of this man's soul. He wasn't misreading his intentions. He wasn't misreading his heart. Jesus knew that this man had true faith in him to heal his son. What Jesus begins to do is draw that faith out into a fuller expression. I think as Ritterboss said, I'll just quote this. I quoted it last week, but uh, Herman Ritterboss in his commentary on John, he stated at this point, that even in this heart-rending situation in which the royal official came to, came to Jesus, Jesus was not content simply to heal this man's son. His seeming harshness was aimed at not letting the man and his entire household remain stuck halfway on the road of faith. Right? And last week we took away the principle that Jesus will, will, will stop at... at he will stop at nothing to make sure that the faith in his people is true and genuine and is being perfected. He'll, he will spare no expense in, in that work. And so this third degree that Jesus offers to this man or against this man, it's not denying the man's expression of true faith. It's challenging his faith and calling upon it to rise to a higher degree on this occasion. Now, as we said last week as well, there are many times when you and I are challenged in this same way, and we acknowledge that very often during those times, as painful as it is for us, what you and I need most in order to strengthen our faith is to hear the Lord saying no to our request. We rejoice when the Lord answers our prayer request, especially when their prayer requests like, Lord, heal my son. But when the Lord chooses not to do that, how are we supposed to respond? How are we supposed to understand what feels to us very often to be a stiff arm? We have to keep in mind that sometimes what is most needed for us is the last thing we would desire. Sometimes what's most needed for our faith to be drawn out and to be refined and to be perfected is to experience the Lord telling us no. And I think this is especially something we need to keep in mind when we are talking about asking the Lord for good things. Things that inherently are good and right. 
When Jesus is not giving us what we're asking for, what we learn from the counsel of Scripture is that He is testing us. And He is proving our faith and proving whether we will continue trusting in Him even when He doesn't give us what we're asking. Now, that's where we left off last week. It, despite the fact that that is very often what we experience in our walk with the Lord, there are other times when the apparent hesitancy of Jesus is itself the means that Jesus is going to use to answer our request. So sometimes the Lord says no to our request because that is the means of drawing out our faith more fully and perfecting it. Other times, there's an apparent hesitancy on God's part to answer our prayers. It's not that He won't answer them according to what we're asking. It's that He's waiting. He's pausing for a reason. And it's because that hesitation is what He uses as the means to eventually answer our request. That's what we see in this royal official in Jesus' dealings with Him. This is the second thing we're going to notice is how the royal official responds to Jesus. This is really where we see Jesus' purpose come to the surface in his dealings with this man. And by the way, just as a parenthesis, I hope this isn't too uh, chaotic or back and forth for you to follow, but why Jesus chooses at times to say no to certain good requests and why he chooses to hesitate and eventually give them, I can't tell you. I don't know. We, we are not told in Scripture. The only thing we are encouraged to do in Scripture is to rest in the fact that His omniscient wisdom knows what is best for us, and He knows how to work perfectly in every moment and circumstance for our good. So, why does He go one way or the other at times? I don't know. But I know that He's wise, far beyond us. And we're called to trust in him. Now, with this man, the way this man responds to Jesus' response, right? that's what we're looking at, you really see this man's faith come out. In verse 48, Jesus says, you just won't believe in me. You're just like everyone else, aren't you? You won't believe in me unless you see signs and wonders. In verse 49, the man humbly responds back to Jesus saying, Sir... Just come down before my son dies. You see that in that he's responding with an affirmation of his true desire. What he's truly seeking. He's not after the miracles and the signs show. He's not after the, 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 uh, the lights and flashing and, and all the excitement. He's there, he's there because of his son. He's driven by a genuine concern to see his son helped, and he knows that Jesus is the only one who's able to help. He says, Lord, I'm not here for the sign. I'm here because my son is dying, and if you don't do something about it, he's going to die. And you can even hear in this response to Jesus the depth of his desperation. This man is a royal official in the court of King Herod. 
And yet here he comes bowing down to this humble carpenter, calling him sir. Addressing Jesus, in other words, as his superior. See, what we're seeing here is a clearer glimpse at the reality of this man's faith. He knows Jesus is his son's only hope, and he's not going to give up in asking Jesus for help. He's undeterred by Jesus' question, right? That third degree, that stiff arm. It doesn't cause the man to hesitate for a moment. He simply keeps plowing forward. He says, Lord, you may think that that's what's going on here, but that's not what is going on. I need you to help my son. And Jesus' apparent aloofness did not halt this man's desperate pursuit of Jesus. And I think, beloved, that that is what Jesus was after. He let the, in other words, he let the pressure of the man's circumstance combine together with the hint that Jesus may not be willing to help. You follow that? He let the pressure of the man's situation combine together with the prospect that Jesus might not be willing to help him. And that pressure produced in this man a greater and more intensified expression of true faith. Uh, An expression of faith that would never have been expressed apart from just even the inkling that Jesus might not come help his son. What that produced in him was a holy resolve to wrestle with Jesus and to grab onto him more tightly and declare, I have no other option, there's nowhere else for me to go, and I'm not going to let you go until you bless me. That Jacob cried. Beloved, that's the kind of faith that Jesus delights to see in each one of us. Not because he's on some egotistical power trip either. Right? Like, I got all the power, and I, what are you going to do for me to give it to you? Right? He's, not, he's not reserving his ability to help us in times of need so that he can gloat over us or bring us to the point where we're desperately groveling before him. That's not his intention. Sometimes he hesitates because that kind of undeterred pursuit of Christ and that undeterred uh, pursuit of his blessing is how true faith ought always to express itself. And the only way for it to be expressed is to come to a point of thinking, the Lord may not help me here. Jesus desires to bring us not into a disheartened defeat, but to bring us more uh, fully into a bold and desperate, persistent pursuit. You know, that's what Jesus teaches us in other parts of Scripture, isn't it? Are you guys still with me? (laughs) Maybe I'm not with us, I think. This is what Jesus tells us in other parts of Scripture. You see in Luke 18, for example, when when Jesus is telling us a parable of a widow woman who's approaching an unjust judge, the purpose behind that parable was so that his disciples would learn how not to lose heart and to continue praying to God. So so he told them a parable so that they would not give up in prayer and not lose heart. Right? That's verse 1. That they ought always to pray and not lose heart. 
This parable involves a woman seeking justice from an unrighteous judge. According to the parable, Jesus says this judge is not willing to hear her, but eventually, listen now, eventually it was her undeterred persistence that led the unrighteous judge to say, even though I don't fear God, and even though I don't respect man, I will give this woman justice because she bothers me. Right? I'm going to give her justice, otherwise she's just going to keep coming, and eventually she's going to wear me out. So I'm just going to give her what she wants so that I don't get worn out in the process. Jesus turns to his disciples and says, hear what the unjust judge said? And how much more will God hear the cries of his elect who cry out to him day and night? Will he not give them justice and give it speedily? How often we find ourselves filled with greater resolve to prevail with ungodly men than we are with resolve to prevail with a holy God. As if we find it easier to labor with ungodly men of the world than to labor with God to have our request answered. Like we had, like it's, and the point of this parable is to show the disciples that, yes, look around at the world. Very often people express more trust in unrighteous people than they do in a righteous God. It shouldn't be like that. It should be reversed. That's why Jesus says, you know, Jesus is after that kind of expression of faith that that this woman demonstrated before this unrighteous judge. She knew if I just keep coming, if I just keep asking, if I just prevail with this unrighteous judge a little longer, I'm going to get what I'm asking for. Jesus says, listen, God is much more willing to do good to his elect than this unrighteous judge was willing to do to this widow woman. Jesus wants that kind of faith, that kind of fighting faith that cries out to God day and night for what we're asking. And that's why he says in verse 8, I tell you, God's elect who cry out to him day and night will bring about, uh, that God will bring about justice for them quickly. However, when the Son of Man comes, will he even find faith on the earth? Jesus throws this into the category of faith, this kind of wrestling with God. See, faith is supposed to be persistent, and it's supposed to persevere and travail and to struggle through unto victory. But the only way for our faith to manifest like that is for our Lord to withhold his blessings and keep them in reserve until we learn how to be persistent in faithfully seeking him for them. It might be wordy. Jesus wants us to prevail with God the way this woman prevailed with the unrighteous judge. But the only way you and I are going to learn how to do that is if God holds his blessings in reserve until we learn how to seek him for them persistently. That's what Jesus is doing with this man in John 4. He's calling him to keep asking. He's calling him to keep seeking and to keep knocking until what he's asking for is given. And until he finds what he's seeking, until the door is open. 
You know, there are other times in Scripture where we find Jesus doing the same thing. And uh, Joe Delaria brought this up last week at the end of service. I said, brother, that's right where I'm planning to go. But he saw a parallel between Jesus' dealings with this royal official in John 4 and Jesus' dealings with the Syrophoenician woman in Matthew 15. In Matthew 15, verse 22 through 27, we read of this Canaanite woman who comes to Jesus begging for his help because his, her daughter is uh, possessed with a demon and afflicted severely by it. Verse 22, she comes crying out to Jesus saying, Have mercy on me, son of David. My, my daughter is cruelly demon-possessed. Now, How did Jesus respond to her? Initially, in verse 23, he simply responded with silence. He didn't even address her. He didn't even acknowledge her presence. He just kept walking and ignored her. Verse 24, she kept crying out and Jesus says, I wasn't sent here to help you. What I have to give is not yours. It doesn't belong to you. How did the woman respond? She just kept shouting for Jesus to help her, even when he was ignoring her. When Jesus said, the help I have to give is not for you, she just bowed down before him all the more fully and desperately pleaded with him, Lord, help me. And even when Jesus turned and called her a dog and said, this food is not for the dogs, it's for the children, she says, well, that's fine, Lord. If you want to call me a dog, that's fine. I'll take the scraps that are falling from the children's table. You see in her this persistent pursuit of Jesus Christ. She's not going to give up because she knows that Jesus is her only hope. And how does Jesus respond after she makes the statement, I'll just accept the scraps that are falling from their table, Lord. The things that they don't want, I'll take. Jesus says in verse 28, O woman, your faith is great. It shall be done for you as you wish. You hear in that, oh, woman. You hear that, it's almost like a, an endearing phrase. There, there's, this, there's this expression of, of love and compassion in his voice. Oh, woman, your faith is great. Now, just think about this for a moment. The whole time for this Canaanite woman, and we can draw the parallel to the man in John 4, the whole time it appeared on the surface like Jesus didn't want anything to do with her. But in reality, he was simply drawing out of her more and more of the beauty of her faith. Now, with that in mind, just think about this for a minute. What if this woman had taken Jesus' silence as her answer? Or what if she had lost heart when Jesus explicitly said to her, this blessing is not for you? Wouldn't that be reason enough to give up? Or if, if she had been offended when Jesus called her a dog, how many of you would be offended if Jesus looked at you and said, you're a dog and I've got nothing for you? I said, well, fine, I'm going somewhere else. Where else are you going to go? That's the woman's attitude. If this woman had given up at that point, then she would have missed out on the blessing that Jesus had in store for her. You agree with that? 
And she would have not, here's probably the more important part here. If she had given up at any one of those steps from the moment she came to Jesus initially and the moment that she received the blessing from his hand, if she had given up at any one of those points in between, what she would have done was was, uh, she would have been refusing to let the Lord do his work of dealing perfectly with her faith. She would not have been letting the Lord's dealings with her perfect and refine her faith in him. Beloved, how many blessings and how many answers to prayers have we missed out on? How atrophied has our faith become simply because we have lost heart and have not continued believing in God enough to keep seeking Him? How many answers to prayers have you and I not received simply because we've stopped praying? Now, I I want to confess openly and acknowledge I believe in the sovereign God who is so entirely in control of his creation that the dice cannot be thrown into the lap apart from its decision being made by the Lord. A, A sparrow cannot be fed or die apart from the knowledge of my God. There's not a flower that blossoms. There's not a blade of grass that withers. And there's not even a single hair on my head that will fall to the ground apart from my Father saying so. Praise God, because I've got hair falling out. And so do you. Some of you. <laughs> Some of you. I believe in the absolute sovereignty of God over every breath I take. I believe that every single number of the days I'm going to live have already been predetermined for me and written for me in God's book. And they're going to unfold perfectly according to His will. Nothing is going to disrupt that. Psalm 139.16, if you're wondering. Psalm 138.8, one of my greatest hopes. The Lord will accomplish what concerns me. There's not a virus, there's not persecution, there's no threat in this planet that will cause God's will for me to fail. Like George Whitfield said, I am invincible until God's purposes for me are done. And then I'm going to be done. I believe in a sovereign God. And yet, at the same time, Isn't it that same sovereign God who says to us in James 4, verse 2, that one reason you and I don't have is because you and I don't ask? James says, you have not because you ask not. Beloved, we can't play games with God on an issue like this. And this is what I want to really drive at. We can't blame the results of our own negligence and lethargy on the sovereignty of God. Right? And very often we do that. Even in our prayers we pray, Lord, let your sovereign will be done. And we leave it there. We haven't yet begun to learn what it means to wrestle with God for something. To labor with Him in the night watches and to go before Him with a broken heart saying, Lord, I need you to come through for me on this. If you don't come through for me on this, I'll perish. In that fight of temptation, when you feel the pressure of sin coming upon you, you must be willing to learn how to turn to the Lord in the midst of the battle and say, God, if you don't come through, I'm going to give in to this sin right now. I remember, I remember one night, one temptation coming upon me so strongly. 
I thought I was not going to be able to bear it. And I, and I had the verse in mind in, in Hebrews 12, resist sin to the point of shedding your blood. And by God's grace, I was determined that night that I was going to resist. I was going to resist even if it cost me my life. I'm resisting tonight. But I remember praying to the Lord for hours, Lord, if you will not come help, I'm not going to be able to stand. Next thing I know, I woke up at 6 o'clock in the morning in the same position I was in when I was praying. The Lord gave help. But it was hours of labor and toil in seeking the Lord for that help. We can't, we can't treat the result of our negligence and laziness in, in our pursuit of God. We can't treat those results as well, that's the sovereign will of God for me. That's the way it was supposed to be. Que sera, sera. That's nihilism. That's not biblical Christianity. And here, here's, here's a principle I want us to take away from this. From, from this example of the man in John 4, from the, the Syrophoenician woman in Matthew 15, from the instructions and in the parable in Luke 18, here's what we want to take away from this. Until you and I receive a definitive no from the Lord on something, until we receive a definitive no, we need to make it our resolve to keep asking, to keep seeking, and to keep knocking even if we already think the answer might be no. Remember David? His and Bathsheba's first child? The Lord declared through Nathan the, Nathan the prophet from the very beginning, the child's going to die. David knew what the Lord had said, and yet how did David respond once the child was born? He was fasting. He was laboring in prayer. He was humbling himself before the Lord in hope that God just might have mercy and spare the child's life. David knew what the Lord was going to do, but that did not keep David from wrestling with God to see something else happen. Now the Lord gave David his answer, didn't he? The child died. And once God's definitive answer was made known, David got up. He dressed himself. He washed his face. And he sat down to eat. Right? The decision had been made. But up until that point, David wrestled with God. Until you and I receive similar definitive no's from the Lord on something we're asking of him, I think that the Lord wants us to pursue him more ardently with the desires of our hearts being laid bare before him. Part of walking in faith is being defiant of our own tendency towards indifference. We can so easily become indifferent about things. And just the Lord's going to do it sovereignly. It'll happen. I can't worry about that. That's a temptation that I think is, is sinful. And I think we need to choose not to walk according to that cadence of kesarasara, that indifferent drumbeat that's in our hearts at times. 
God wants us to be bold in seeking him and in seeking his blessing. And that's the kind of faith we see this royal official in John 4 manifesting. Uh, The faith that that Jesus was drawing out of him and clearly the kind of faith that Jesus was pleased to answer because eventually the Lord did answer his request. Now the final piece I want to look at, and this is extremely brief. The final piece that reveals that ultimately Jesus was after this man's faith is seen in the result. So point number three is the result. Um, As we briefly pointed out last week, the end result of this interaction between this man and Jesus is that this man's faith was not only drawn out of him and exercised in a greater way, but also his faith was strengthened in the end. So he had enough faith at the beginning to come to Christ. He had enough faith to continue pleading for Christ to heal his son. Then he had enough faith to take Jesus at his word and to act upon it. When Jesus said, your son lives, the man got up and he went on his way home, believing what Jesus had said. But it was when he came to discover the fulfillment of what Jesus had said that the text explicitly says in verse 53 that he believed in Jesus and his whole household. The faith that he already had in the Lord was strengthened through this ordeal of seeking Jesus to bless his son. So verse 53, when he had heard that the word was fulfilled, the man himself believed even more in Jesus, as did his household. Now that's the ultimate blessing that Jesus was seeking to impart. More than the well-being of his son, it was the strengthening and the confirming and the encouraging of his faith. And uh, and just as we begin to close in application, I, I believe that Jesus is after that same blessing in our lives as well. And the, the only way that you and I are going to get that blessing is to imitate the royal official's pursuit of Christ. There's only one way that we can see our faith in Christ grow as a Christian, and that is if we are willing to trust Jesus enough to take him at his word. And then to act upon his word in faith, one step at a time, without having to see the results with our own eyes. This man did not have to see his son healed in order to believe Jesus' word that said his son was alive. In principle, you and I are only going to grow in our relationship with Christ if we are willing to manifest and exercise that same kind of faith. The same kind of faith that says, Jesus has spoken this word. I'm going to believe him for it, even if I can't see it with my own eyes right now. 2 Corinthians 5.17, we don't walk by sight. We walk by what? Faith. Romans chapter 8, our hope... We hope for that which we do not see, right? If we see what we're hoping for, we're no longer hoping for it because we see it. But we are waiting in hope and faith on the Lord to bring all of his word to pass for our good. So how do we grow in our faith? By by following this example. I believe that John 4 ends with this second sign of Jesus with this royal official to to help us understand how Jesus deals with us in our walk with him and what he's ultimately after. Yes, he is willing to bless us with many good things and we have shared in an abundance of good things that the Lord has given to us. But the ultimate thing Jesus after is stronger faith in you and stronger faith in me. So.
we keep that in mind as we seek him, I believe the Lord will be with us and help our faith grow. And would you pray with me? Lord, there are many things for us to, to take away from what we've seen here at the end of John 4. We would learn from this the rightness of seeking your miraculous intervention in our lives. Or that it's good to seek you to help us in our times of need. It's right to do that and you want us to do that. It's also good for us to evaluate why we're seeking you for that thing. Is it for your glory or is it for ours? Is it for Christ's sake or is it for our own sake? And Lord, we also learn from this that we must be content in you when you choose not to give us what we're asking. Please give us grace to rest in you, to trust in you, to rely upon you for all things we need in the future. You are our God. You are our help from ages past. You are our hope for years to come. So, Lord, we look to you in faith together, and we pray that you would be with us for Jesus' sake. Amen. Amen. All right, now hear a benediction uh, from Hebrews chapter 11, verses 1 and 2. Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen, for by it the men of old gained approval. May you go forth in exercising faith. May you know the blessing of gaining Christ's approval in your life. In Jesus' name we pray for this. Amen.